And the equip folks, I guess they're leaving too. It's just like salt in the wound. When you announce it while they're singing, I don't see everyone go, but now it's like, huh. <laughs> yeah, so that's all good. Thank you for being here. Um, I have some water. I'm fighting something. It's goofy. And so if I pop, stop to take a drink, that's why. Um, just nothing major. But anyway, it's great. It's a privilege to be able to share the word with you. Um, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 7. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 7. Um, last week, Pastor Steve preached from Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, and where the Messiah would, we, would be born in the city of Bethlehem. And we learned about uh, really what entailed that prophecy, and that the king of the Jews who was coming was going to come to that town. And um, today we're, we're going to be continuing to look at the incarnation, the coming to earth of God the Son, and in particular, uh, something about his coming that was very, very unique, in fact, miraculous. In fact, it would be unbelievable if it weren't in God's word, and that is the virgin birth. Now, before I start this sermon, I want to, to tell you a little bit about my family. Now, my family, uh, around October, I have uh, my oldest daughter, her birthday is uh, right around October 4th, and we have a get-together with uh, our extended family to celebrate her birthday. And at these get-togethers, it's right around the fall, so you have, you know, the cider, and you have the autumn feel, and, and so we put out these bowls of, of um, uh, trail mix. We're, we, I love trail mix for a uh, for, for a snack. It's great. And, and it's just, you know, nothing, nothing big. It's peanuts and raisins and M&Ms and candy corn. And I'll tell you what, that is wonderful. I just, that's it's one of the highlights of my daughter's birthday is we get that trail mix. We only have it that one time because if we had it any other time, it would be bad news for us uh, from a weight standpoint. Now, we have all the little nieces and nephews come, and, and they all, you know, like to enjoy the, the birthday party. But as we put things away and we collect all the leftover trail mix, we notice something. The trail mix is a little bit different than when it was when we set it out. Not that it's not there. Oh, there's still plenty of trail mix. However, two key ingredients of the trail mix are gone. We went from a trail mix of M&Ms, candy corn, peanuts, and raisins to a more healthy trail mix of peanuts and raisins. You know, wonder where those uh, M&Ms and candy corn went. And, and if there's trail mix in my house, that's usually what the trail mix looks like if my kids have anything to do with them. They pick out the M&Ms and the candy corn and they leave behind the peanuts and the M&Ms, or the peanuts and the raisins, I should say. And you say, what in the world does this have to do with the virgin birth? Can I tell you, can I tell you that, that a lot of people in our world treat this book like my kids treat trail mix. They take what they like or what makes them feel good or perhaps what helps them and they omit the rest. They, they exclude things that maybe aren't as agreeable or if they leave them in there, they kind of redefine them and give them more of a moralistic, therapeutic 
therapy, like deistic type of approach. Almost like, you know, it, it's not as bad as Thomas Jefferson's Bible. I mean, you, you heard about the story of Thomas Jefferson who, who took a Bible and because he was a deist, he cut out all the supernatural things. And it was actually meant to just kind of stay within his own property, but somehow it got out and, and people heard of it. And now we have this legend of, of Thomas Jefferson and his anti-supernaturalist Bible being informed by the Enlightenment, right? That, that reason and scientific inquiry were really the, the, the pathways to truth and to knowledge. And anything supernatural should basically just be disposed of. Well, you know, 200 years later, we're a bit more sophisticated than that. We'll leave it in the Bible. We'll just redefine it. We'll just describe it as maybe not as literal. Or maybe uh, it can be described as an archetypal type of a, 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 a story where it actually stands for something greater. Can I tell you that the virgin birth in the past hundred years has really fallen on hard times when it comes to Bible critics, when it comes to theologians? In fact, if you were to grab a commentary on the book of Isaiah, book of Matthew, the book of Luke, the three primary passages we're going to be looking at tonight, most commentators that would describe themselves as theologians do not see this as a literal event. So, what they've done is they've taken the trail mix approach to the Bible. We're not going to do that tonight. Okay? It's really important that we take the Bible at its face. Now, I wish I could tell you that really this is just this trend of, of taking, the anti -super, or taking the supernatural, especially like the virgin birth, you know, just kind of removing it or redefining it, was just unique to certain segments of more liberal um, theology. But even someone as well-known as Andy Stanley just last year made the statement. And those of you who don't know who Andy Stanley is, this is Charles Stanley's son, very well-known uh, preacher. I venture to say if you channel surfed on a Sunday, you could, you could pick up an Andy Stanley sermon. Andy Stanley said, said this, a lot of people just don't believe the virgin birth. And I understand that. Maybe the thought is, hey, maybe they had to come up with some myth about Jesus to give him some street cred, you know, later on. Maybe that's where it came from. It's interesting because Matthew gives us a virgin of the birth of Christ, and Luke does, but Mark and John, they don't even mention it. A lot has been made of that. You've heard me say some version of this a million times, so if this is old, you've been around for a while, you'd, you'd be familiar. But see, if somebody can predict their own death and their own resurrection, I'm really not all that concerned about how they got into the world. And so for him, there's really not much to be made of the virgin birth if someone disagrees with it. I mean, after all, Jesus did predict his death and resurrection, and hey, that's good enough for me. Is this really that important of a doctrine? Is it? What are we as Christians to do with the virgin birth? And maybe if I can ask another question, how does this even relate to our lives in the 21st century? Okay? So what I want to leave you with today is this. By affirming the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, and I know I'm talking by and large to a sympathetic audience. Okay? Those of you who are here are probably sympathetic and in agreement, the majority of you are in agreement with the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin. Okay? By affirming the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, here's what I want to leave with you. We submit to the authority of the Bible, first of all, and second of all, we recognize the inability to save ourselves from our sins. Okay? And those are two really, really important things if you're a Christian. 
First of all, we submit to the authority of the Bible, and we recognize our own inability to save ourselves from our sins. Okay? That's a really big deal, not only for yourself, but also for uh, those around you, both believers and non-believers. So before we, any go, before we go any further, let's ask the Lord for wisdom as we read his word. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you that as we study your word, it is clear. Lord, there are difficult passages, to be sure, and we're going to read some of them tonight. But you have given us your spirit. Those who know Christ are indwelt by the spirit who is our instructor and teacher who has enabled us <clears throat> to welcome the word of God. I pray that we would do just that. More than just pleasant receivers, but we would be active responders to the gospel. That it would influence our life so that we might live differently in light of the gospel. Especially in light of how Jesus, the Christ, was born. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So here's what I'm going to do tonight. Okay? Those of you who take outlines, I'm really sorry ahead of time. Okay? So if you want a nice, clear outline... This is kind of it. But what I'm going to do is just kind of walk you through the Old Testament, what the Old Testament says about the virgin birth, what the New Testament says about the virgin birth, and then apply it. Okay? So we're starting in Isaiah chapter 7. And we're going to look at what the Old Testament says about the virgin birth. Where did we get this prophecy of Jesus being born of a virgin in the first place? Well, we get it from Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. It says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now this verse occurs in the middle of a chapter. And so what I don't want to do is just simply snatch this verse out of its context and then see how it fits with a New Testament presupposed you know, interpretation of the virgin birth. Let's be fair to the text. That's all I'm saying. Okay? So here's the text. There's a king of Judah named Ahaz. This is after Israel and Judah had separated. Now Assyria... The Assyrians were a mighty military army. They had a mighty military force, and they were coming in. They were starting to invade. They hadn't quite yet invaded Israel. That happened in 722. This was taking place roughly about 735 B.C. So Judah, the southern kingdom, led by Ahaz, a descendant of the line of David, which is really important, Ahaz was really concerned about these Assyrians. So you know what Ahaz did? He actually took some of the gold out of the temple and took some of the, their, 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 their precious um, possessions that came out of the temple and sent them to Assyria, hopefully like a peace offering. Please don't invade us. We'll give you this stuff. Clearly not God's will, but in hopes of pacifying this impending army. However, the army wasn't slowing down. In fact, there were two other kings, two other leaders that were really concerned about Ahaz as well, or that were really concerned about Assyria as well. Those two other leaders were from Israel and Syria. Their names show up in verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 7. Now it came to pass in the day have Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, 
the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. You say, those are some big words, especially on a Sunday night. Okay, I know. What I'm going to do is just kind of summarize this. So, you have Pekah from Israel, and you have Rezin from Syria making an alliance. And they're thinking, okay, here comes Assyria. We're in trouble. Let's go down. Let's take over Judah. Let's put in a king there. Throw out Ahaz. Put in a king there. And now we can have like a triumvirate. And the three of us can now take on Assyria. So they were coming down to overthrow Judah in hopes to finally avoid Assyria. Ahaz hears of this, and he's scared. He's very concerned. So the Lord visits Ahaz and assures him, this is not going to take place. You don't need to worry. Because Ahaz was really worried about two things. He was worried first about his own position as king, but he was also concerned, I mean, there was concern about the whole prophecy of a descendant of David being on the throne. And so if you have Ahaz being overthrown, now all of a sudden he's not there, but there's a line of David that is no longer there. And God intervenes and says, don't worry, I'll keep my covenant with David. In fact, I want you to ask for a sign to prove to you that I'm going to protect you. In fact, that happens in verse 10. The Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol or high as heaven. Basically, what what God is saying here is, Ahaz, make a sign that could be from the grave. I mean, something as deep as the grave, like, Ask me to raise someone from the dead. Or ask a sign that's as high as the heavens, like some meteorological sign, like a comet, or or something like Elijah. Remember with the sacrifices and the fire came down? Ask for something like that. Well, in verse 11, I'm sorry, verse 12, Ahaz says, but Ahaz says, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Now this sounds very noble. But look at God's response in verse 13. Then he said, listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you also try the patience of my God as well? This wasn't a good thing that Ahaz did. And so God responds, no, I'm going to give you a sign even though you're not asking for it. And here's the sign. A virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now, if you have the New American Standard, which is the Bible I'm reading from. At the beginning of verse 14, it says, Behold, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin. Now, in the Hebrew, that word before virgin is actually a definite um, article. It's it's a the. So maybe your translations, if you have the NIV or, or maybe a different translation, it says the virgin. Okay? Now, that word also for virgin is a Hebrew word that can also mean young girl or young maiden. It doesn't always mean a girl who has not had a sexual relationship with someone. Okay? Now, when this prophecy is given, behold, the virgin will, conceive, will be with child and bear a son. This is 
the sign that Ahaz, I don't, Ahaz wouldn't have specifically asked for the sign, but this was the kind of sign that Ahaz was supposed to ask for. This was a really, really supernatural thing. I mean, this doesn't happen. Just like people raising from the grave or comets coming down from the sky, fire, or whatever, those type of things don't normally happen. And so when God says, ask for a sign, okay, I'll give you a sign, clearly this was more than just a young girl having a child, okay, or a teenage girl or a young maiden having a child. This was more than just something that happened normally. This was very extraordinary, okay? So even though when we look at uh, the, the word for virgin, you know, and, and there's been a lot of disagreement. Is this, is this talking about a young girl? Is this talking about um, an actual virgin? And if it were talking about an actual virgin, why wouldn't they use that specific word in the Hebrew that always means virgin? Well, we have to consider the whole context here. Okay? Now, fast forward about 250 years. This was about 735. About 250 years later, the Jews translated the Old Testament, the, the complete Old Testament, into Greek. It was called the Septuagint. Okay? The Septuagint, when they translated this passage, they translated from Hebrew to Greek, and they used a term that was really unmistakable. It was only used in the context of a woman who had not had a sexual relationship before. That word is parthenos, not that you really are dying to know that term. But that is the term that was used when translating Isaiah chapter 7. That's also the term that's used in Matthew that we're going to look at in just a little bit. Okay? Now, why is this significant? Because the fulfillment of this prophecy is really unique. It's what we would call messianic. The sign was not just something that would happen in Ahaz's day. It was something that was going to happen when the Lord would come and actually be with them. Hence the name Emmanuel. She will call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Okay? So Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14 points us to the fact that this was going to be a very special child. It was going to be born in a special way, but it was also going to be special in the terms that it was going to be both human and divine. The fullness of deity and the fullness of humanity. Okay? The virgin shall be with child and bear a son. That's, that's human. Okay? But Emmanuel, God with us, that's divine. Okay? Make sense so far? We okay? All right, now let's go to Matthew chapter 1. I'm sorry, Luke chapter 1. This is what the Old Testament said. This is the prophecy. The sign was miraculous. A virgin birth was as miraculous as someone coming up from the grave, something coming down from heaven. But now let's look at the New Testament description of his birth. And we're going to do this in a chronological way, meaning this. Mary was given the news before Joseph was, which is why we're going to be reading Luke chapter 1. <clears throat> verse 26. Now in the sixth month, this is Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin, that word Parthenos, okay, that's that, engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David. 
and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. She was very perplexed at the statement and kept wondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even in your relative, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who is called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. Verse 38, And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. Okay, so we have just fast-forwarded about 700 years from the prophecy of Isaiah to Gabriel speaking to Mary. The Lord has not spoken to Israel in about 400 years. Okay, remember, after Malachi, there was a 400-year period of relative silence. And the way that God spoke was through his prophets. And you have, all of a sudden, this time where, where God intervenes and speaks directly to what most scholars believe to be a, a, a young, almost perhaps teenage girl. Okay? Um, I'm honestly not going to make a strong argument for just how young she was, but, but this was probably someone in her at least mid, possibly late teens. Okay? We know she's a righteous girl. We know she's a relatively poor girl, uh, just given where she resides. But this contact with her was extremely unique, given the sense that God had not communicated directly for over 400 years. Now, Considering the nature of this prophecy, the angel Gabriel made it clear that this child to be born was the fulfillment of the covenant that he said he would preserve back in Isaiah. Okay, look at verse 32. Luke 1, 32. He shall be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him, what? The throne of his father, David. There's an important connection here. Gabriel is communicating to Mary that this child to be born is the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with David. Okay? So God is keeping his promise, not just in Isaiah, but all the way back to David. Okay? Now, what this would have meant for a Jew would have been incredibly encouraging, given their current status at this point in time. They're under Roman rule. Right? There really was no hope in the land. Things were pretty dark and bleak. And so now you have a divine visitation. Not only that, but you have an affirmation of the promises made hundreds, even a thousand years ago. Okay? Now Mary, Mary was clearly taken back by the announcement. And the question that she asked relating to her virginity was something that was understandable. Okay, I'm pregnant. How According to verse 34, how can this be since I am a virgin? An explicit statement to her purity, moral purity. Now, Gabriel clearly identifies the Holy Spirit's role 
in the conception. And this is also the reason why Jesus was born without sin and how the virgin birth directly relates to Jesus' sinlessness. Now, if any of you are, uh, or perhaps have a past in Roman Catholicism, or, you're, uh, or you are a Roman Catholic, uh, the Catholic church, the church teaches that Mary was sinless, and that Jesus actually received his sinlessness, in part, by the fact that he was born by his sinless mother. However, verse 35 is really important in understanding how it is that Jesus could be sinless. And it did not have to do with Mary. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Jesus' sinlessness was not the result of Mary's sinlessness. This was not an immaculate conception. No, his sinlessness was because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. You see, normal conception of children results in normal children. I know that's a terribly profound statement. You're all jotting it down. Mm, that's, that's a nugget to keep, right? But normal children are sinners. They're born with sin natures. Normal procreation results in predictable results. This was not normal. This was supernatural. The Holy Spirit was the Father, or God was the Father, right? It did not have to do with Mary's sinlessness, now, or, or Mary being sinless. In fact, we could actually make a case for Mary being a sinner just like you and me. How so? Well, let's look further down in Luke chapter 1, verse 46, after she visits Elizabeth. And Elizabeth affirms the fact that Wow, God has visited you and the, 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 one in your, the one in your womb will be the Savior of us all. Mary responds in verse 46. This is uh, what the church is called the Magnificat. And Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Jesus came, and, 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 and when he came, and, and I'm thinking of Matthew chapter 1, because we'll see this in, in just a little bit, but the reason why they called his name Jesus is because he would save his people from their sins. Mary's identifying with one of those people who need to be saved from their sins, right? Look also in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. <clears throat> I think this is really important. Luke chapter 2 and verse 21. And when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This is Jesus, obviously. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they, Mary and Joseph, brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Verse 24. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. Now, much is made of the fact that they're giving turtle doves pigeons, so their economic status, they were, they were quite poor. But this was a sin offering. And sinners often offer sin offerings. Mary was not sinless. Okay? And so when we're talking about the virgin birth, we're talking about someone who was a righteous person, to be sure. We're not going to minimize that. But we're also going to 
make sure that, that we understand the true nature of who it was that was honoring the Lord here. That she was a woman that was also in need of a Savior as well. Okay? Now, back to the literal nature of this event. Gabriel, in Luke chapter 1, references the pregnancy of Elizabeth in her old age. And he sums up both events by saying, nothing is impossible with God. And I find that ironic, especially in modern theology, in the modern critic, who sees a virgin birth as way too impossible for God. Yet this passage says, nothing is impossible with God. Now, I just want to make a comment here. I think a case could be made that no person on earth outside of Jesus himself has had greater physical, emotional, or spiritual demands placed on them than Mary and Joseph. I, I, I can't say that with absolute certainty or authority. But as I was studying this, and I was thinking about just the human element and the gravity of what was taking place on these individuals, Mary and Joseph, the pressure that they bore from a physical standpoint, her life was reoriented in that moment. I mean, you think about it. Whatever plans she had, those are done. She's now going to be a mom. She wasn't planning on being a mom. I mean, and I don't mean to be irreverent here, um, there's a billboard near my house on Route 20, and, and I kind of chuckle at it um, because it has pictures of, of different women, and it says, unplanned pregnancies can happen to anyone. And, and I'm thinking, well... Not really, but okay. I, I appreciate the, the desire to try to help out, you know, people who, you know, are pregnant and are in a difficult place. You know, I, I'm, praise the Lord for that. This really was an unplanned pregnancy. Of all the pregnancies that have ever taken place on the face of the planet, this was certainly unplanned. This was someone who was obeying the law. And yes, it was a miracle. And yes, we look at Mary and we think, wow, what a privilege. But I can guarantee you that during those nine months, there were times where I'm, probably, I, I'm pretty confident that she didn't see it as a great thing. In fact, the consequences of a woman who would become pregnant without being married in that community could be death. And that's part of the reason why Joseph responded the way that he responded. We understand also that even beyond just the pregnancy and birth, even her life, I mean, consider the comments of Simeon. Remember how they go to the temple? They see Anna, they see Simeon. And Simeon sees her and says, a sword will pierce even your own soul. Recognizing that Jesus came to save his people from their sins. And we sing a song called, you know, Born to Die. Or we, we recognize that, that, um, that when Jesus came and he was born, that, that he was you know, here to give his life as a ransom for many, and, and we're thankful for that. But this was also a mom. This was also a human being. This was a, a young one and a poor one. God didn't ask for her permission to do this. His plan doesn't take or did not take into consideration her comfort. And when we consider her response in all this, and I think this is a great point of application, verse 38 of Luke chapter 1, all of this. Granted, she's you know, processing this angel that visits her. She's processing the fact that she's never had a sexual relationship before, but now she's pregnant, and all of the things that are going on in her brain, and she says what? Behold the bond slave of the Lord. I am your slave. 
That word um, that's used uh, later on in the New Testament by Paul, don't be a slave to sin, but be a slave to righteousness. Same word. God, I am your slave. I am your servant. May it be done to me according to your word. You know, as Christians, if we are his slaves, and if his will is our will, then he gets to do what he wants with us. Our plans, our comfort, our reputation. Hey, think about our reputation. Control. And we have to ask ourselves the question, do we really believe this? I mean, do we really believe if he is our Lord and we are the servant, do we really, I mean, is that something that we can really believe? And, and, and a lot of times, the answer really comes out in the fact of when he decides to realign the plans. When God, as it were, takes the wheel and turns it. You know, you think of Job. Remember Job, Old Testament? Remember the accusations that Satan made against Job? You know, God and Satan are having this conversation. And God points out Job and says, have you considered my servant Job? Look how righteous he is. There's no one as righteous as him on the face of the planet. And Satan says, well, of course he's righteous. Look at his life. How could you not be? He gave him everything he wants. You've built a hedge around him. Take it away. Let's see what happens. And God allows him to do just that. The servant of the Lord. Wow, you realize you're a servant of the Lord, and you realize you're a believer in, in God's word when, when the plans that you have get reoriented, when, when they get changed. It's like if life is the boat, and we have the compass, God's word, and steady as she goes, and we know the destination, ultimately God's glory, being Christ-like, right? Steady as she goes, I'm going to obey, I'm going to serve, I'm going to love. And then God says, okay, I know that's the route you're thinking you're going, but I'm going to take you on a different route. And now we're going to go through waters that you probably wouldn't otherwise go through and probably don't want to go through. And we're going to go this way. Destination's still the same. Not changing that at all. Okay. But where you're going is now maybe what you didn't have planned or maybe what you wouldn't have planned. I mean, what does that look like in life, in real life? Looks like cancer, wayward children, um, housing market collapse where you've been a good steward and then all of a sudden you know your home is now 50% of its value you know an economic collapse where all of the investing that you've done and trying to to be you know wise with your money and 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 you've given you're giving faithfully and and all of this and then you know a downturn in the market and 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 now my plans for what I was going to do when I retire, now that whole retirement or redeployment, that, that just got changed. Now God has introduced a health issue in my life where mentally I still want to do everything I want to do, and they're really, really good things, but my body just won't let me do that. Maybe it's just the season of life. I just can't do it now. Maybe it's my spouse who now has maybe all of the things that we just mentioned, and I love them, and there's so much else I'd want to do, and, 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 but, but I love them. And, and now my plan has just been reoriented. Okay? Our response must be, even if we don't feel like saying it, it's not hypocrisy. Behold, I'm your slave, Lord. You redeemed me. You bought me with the price, Right? May it be done to me according to your word. 
the Lord appeared to Mary, right? So we see this transition over to Matthew. So let's turn to Matthew. How did he respond? As good as Mary? Yep, he was a righteous man as well. So I told you, if you're taking notes, this isn't a great outline. I'm sorry. Just kind of walking you through Isaiah, then, then, then Luke, and now Matthew, and then at the end I'll give you some good things to write down. Okay. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. The Lord appeared to Mary first, then he appeared to Joseph. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he'd considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, what does he call him? Son of David. That's a big deal. Remember that whole covenant thing that we were talking about? That's a big deal. Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And here's key. Matthew, we went through this book about two years ago in our evening services. And the theme of Matthew is that Jesus is the king of the Jews. And throughout Matthew, of all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you have more Old Testament quotations than any other. Because Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience predominantly, and he's wanting their attention to be brought back to the Old Testament, say, see, this Jesus, he's the prophesied Messiah. Okay, he's the one. And so verse 22, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, God is concerned, like we said, about keeping his covenant, so he addresses Joseph as the son of David, even though Joseph really was more or less the stepfather, the earthly father of Jesus. Joseph had also kept himself pure, verse 19, Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, so he kept himself faithful, morally pure. And so God was honoring them both for their purity. Now, when I, I had the privilege of actually teaching or, or preaching this several years ago, and I made this point of application then, and I'm going to make it now, especially in light of what's going on in our country right now. God loves moral purity. We cannot escape that. God loves moral purity. He does not honor it all in the same way. But clearly, we have two righteous individuals that kept themselves sexually pure. And for us to go through all of this story and not at least take a moment to recognize that, I think would be missing part of the virtue that, that is highlighted in the, their lives. God loves the fact that they kept themselves morally pure. Just for a moment, let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus, that as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you keep doing this more and more. 
For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. What does your sanctification look like? That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. God loves moral purity. He's called his children to walk in moral purity and walk today in moral purity. Now, this completely flies in the face of our culture, which I can say pretty confidently hates moral purity. I mean, seriously, the only time it's ever popular to use the word virgin is this time of year, Christmas time, where we can sing songs about it. Or maybe if you're going to Mass, and you're, uh, you know, you're, if you go to a you should go to a Mass, but if you were to go to Mass and you hear the Virgin Mary, okay? Virgin Mary, then it's okay, all right? Or round yon virgin mother and child, that's okay. But to be a virgin, <laughs> you're the laughing stock. You're, virginity is something to be overcome, not something to delight in. I mean, our society, uh, you know, it, it, it celebrates the throwing off of moral purity. And as Christians, there aren't many more ways that we can be light in darkness than by celebrating moral purity. By raising our children, our grandchildren, in a way that celebrates moral purity. That sets examples before our children and grandchildren, both in ourselves, but then also those that can have discipling relationships or can have influential relationships by putting them in the presence of people who keep themselves morally pure and appealing to just a lifestyle of joy because the message is, man, moral purity is like, I mean, that's like the wet blanket at the party. That's, that's, the, that's the boring. I mean, what, what do you do? And this is just so natural for you. Why don't you? I mean, even in the context of marriage, not to, I, I mean, we know adultery is bad, and our, our society, you know, calls, you know, looks at adultery as, as really a, kind of a, not a good thing. It's destructive to, to marriages. But it sure does glamorize a lot that leads up to that, doesn't it? Well, it celebrates the entertainment, even if it's kind of detached and, you know, I'm not really doing it, but I can at least joy it and, and laugh at it and chuckle at it and, 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 and whatnot. And as Christians, we must constantly remind ourselves that, that God loves moral purity more than just putting off immorality. Put off, put off, put off, put off. Yes, we understand that. But what fills its place? And it's a, a love for what God loves, right? And, and it's, I think part of that also is expressing the joy of obedience that comes when we obey that way. And, and being able to have people in our children and grandchildren's lives that really have a wonderful spiritual life and have a wonderful just, they, they love living. They, they, they're, they're wonderful people to be around. And, and be like that person. And, and watch their example. Does it seem like they're really missing out? 
Hey, what a blessing it is to have godly single people in our church that are morally pure. That if God has called you to singleness, then the opportunity to be that example of moral purity that we can point our teens and maybe our college and career and say, be like that person. Does it seem like they're missing out? I mean, did Jesus really, was he a less fulfilled man? He never got married. He was a virgin, even to the day he died and resurrected. What about Paul? Would we describe Paul and Jesus, two of the pillars of Christianity in in the New Testament, would we describe them as somehow being unfulfilled? I I mean, let's, let's let's define, you know, a biblical life and sanctification with the joy that comes with it and the joy that comes with obedience. Anyway, so uh, back to Matthew chapter 1. This passage explicitly identifies Jesus as the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Now, this passage also indicates, and I think this is a good point of correction as we're studying this passage, this Bible clearly, or the passage clearly indicates that Mary was not a perpetual virgin uh, as is taught in the Roman Catholic Church. The Vatican II, uh, back in the 1962, 1965, the documents that were, that were constructed then state this. Mary was conceived, Mary conceived Jesus in her womb by the power of the Holy Spirit without loss of her virginity. She remained a virgin in giving birth to Jesus his miraculous birth did not diminish her virginal integrity but, integrity, but sanctified it. Following the birth of Jesus, Mary remained a virgin for the rest of her earthly life until such a time as she was taken body and soul into heaven where she reigns as queen. Okay? Now, this is where I, need to believe, I, I believe we need to be careful about Mary because when we see stuff like that, we say, no, that, she's definitely not that. She's not the mother of God. And, she's, and, and so we start almost trying to find holes in, in her morality, like, well, you know, she's, she's certainly not that. But we know she's not a perpetual virgin. Look at verse 25 and 24, 24 and 25. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. So there seems to be a, a level of, of progression that they stayed morally pure. She gave birth to Jesus. But then afterwards, they were married and they enjoyed the rights of marriage, the privileges of just having a sexual relationship. Also, we read that Jesus had brothers and sisters. And that um, in John chapter 8, uh, John chapter 4 as well, where um, you, you have statements that, that, that say that Jesus um, or that Mary you know, had children. And we can assume that Joseph was the earthly father and, and, and even, I mean, how, how do you have children? They, they were not born of a virgin. Only Jesus was. And so this, I, I think it's important that just simply to, to make a statement that helps us go to the Bible to be able to give a biblical answer for things that go beyond the scope of the gospel. Second uh, John warns us of that, that those who go beyond what the gospel states really invite judgment on themselves. And so we don't want to make something, and I don't, I don't, I don't think in this audience we would, but I think it's, it is important that we consider those who might that Mary was a perpetual virgin, a virgin, and, and we just don't find that in Scripture. Okay, so we see Isaiah chapter 7, the, the prophecy of Jesus being born of a virgin. And then we see Matthew, I'm sorry, we see Luke chapter 1, that announcement made to Mary, and, and clearly the gravity of the announcement, yet her submission to the announcement. And then Joseph as well. And we understand that, that Joseph... 
uh, was, having received this message from Gabriel, that this was actually the fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah. Okay, and Matthew goes to a pretty explicit length to say this is the prophecy that fulfilled that was fulfilled. So, what do we do with this? Okay, 21st century. This is nice. Nice to know. It'd be great in a GLBI class. Okay, so what do we do with this? All right, here's what we do. Application number one. I would say I would submit that when a person accepts Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they're not going to understand all of the ins and outs of Christian doctrine. Okay, did you? I didn't. However, when a person, when that believer is taught the scriptural truth about any doctrine, when they're exposed to the word and it's laid open for them, that they are going to welcome the teaching of scripture to that point when they are taught the truth regarding the virgin birth, they will embrace it. I do see this as a litmus test. If I can put it this way, I see this as a litmus test for those who study the Word. If you can study the Word, study what it says about something like the virgin birth of Jesus Christ and actively oppose it or somehow feel that there needs to be a redefinition of it, perhaps because of just how bad it looks to the intelligentsia, you know, maybe the, the friends in the academy that we might lose or how stupid we might look. You know, if that's the case, then we're loving the approval of man rather than the approval of God. And, and that phrase has never been used to describe an authentic follower of Christ. So I, I would say that a person who has studied the Scripture, who has been taught the Scripture, will embrace the virgin birth. And going beyond that, that person will recognize that this book is authoritative that I take my notions of reality from it. I have three daughters. I mean, I'm putting myself in Mary's father's place. And, and a daughter coming home saying, I'm pregnant, but I saw a vision, and it told me that I am going to bear the Messiah. You know, I'm putting myself in Joseph's place. You know, trying to understand that. I, I certainly would have needed an angelic vision to convince me that, that my fiancé was telling the truth. Why? Because that's the human element, right? That, that's just part of being human. However, we can't take that and superimpose it onto Scripture and say, well, mm, I don't know. I mean, that just doesn't happen. I mean, do you really believe that? How do we respond when we share the gospel with someone who does feel that? Do we do an end around of the Bible? Do we try to find maybe an extra biblical way of trying to convince them? Like maybe history. I mean, thousands upon thousands of Christians have believed this. I mean, you're a person of science, right? This is a, you know, peer review, right? There, there's, there's a lot of people that have believed this. You're actually in the minority if you don't. In fact, recent polls say that 79% of Americans believe in the virgin birth. I mean, you sound like you're in the minority. Why wouldn't you... No, we, we go to the Bible. Those numbers don't matter. The Bible is the authority. So we take truth, we present truth, and when truth may not be received, then what do we do? Well, we keep giving them truth. We don't put the sword back in the sheath and say, well, I'm going to find another weapon that might be more agreeable to you. No. The Word. We go to the Word. And we submit to its authority. 
I know we know that, but practically living that out, especially as we articulate it to our unbelieving friends, is really, really important. And then the second point of application is this. Jesus is fully God and fully man. He did this in obedience to God for us. Right? Matthew chapter 1, 23. They call his name Jesus, for he will save his people for their sins. He came to earth for us in obedience to the Father. He will save his people, and he alone is able to save us because of his divinity. We can't save ourselves, and by coming to earth, Jesus did something that we can't do on our own. The virgin birth ultimately points to the inability of man to save himself from his sins. If Jesus was just another man normally procreated, then, then what can he do that we can't? The virgin birth points to this inability of man to save himself. If man could save himself, then why did God the Son have to come in the flesh? For sake of time, we won't turn there, but, but I think of Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. When the kindness of God appeared in flesh, he saved us, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy. This is a divine act of salvation. And when we look at the virgin birth, we see this doctrine. We don't just simply see the means by which Jesus became flesh, but we also see the byproduct of him becoming flesh. What's the result? The result is that God and man are together in one, and he saves us from our sin. And so to undercut that doctrine is to undercut his saving power. To think little of that doctrine of him being born of a virgin, of him being sinless, offering himself as a sacrifice for us, is to really think little of his saving work for us. Now we would say, no, we don't want to do that. But this is a big deal. Going back to the trail mix. Remember the trail mix at the beginning? We can't, we can't be okay when, when, when people pick and choose the parts of Scripture that are palatable to them. I mean, there's an element to where if this Bible is truth, and we hold it as truth, and we're given the opportunity to articulate it in a loving way, then we must stand by it. Consequences be darned, I guess. And, and if I look like a fool for believing something as miraculous as the virgin birth, then, you know, okay, well, I'll just go along with being a fool for thinking that a man died and rose again. And maybe thinking of a, being thought of a fool that one day I'm going to be taken to heaven. And I'm going to come to heaven, or I'm going to come back to earth with, with my Savior on, on horse, and I'm going to live here for a thousand years, and I'm going to reign with him. And, and, and then he's going to destroy, you know, everything that's wicked and going to make a new heaven and new earth, and I'm going to live for eternity in perfection forever. Yeah, I guess I'm just, I'll be dumb for that too. But I'd rather be dumb for that than, than turn my back on the supernatural, than turn my back on the miraculous of when we read it in Scripture. Certainly, as Pastor Kent preached, you know, we, we, we give much stock to the to the uh, providence of God. We're not expecting these miracles to happen. But when we read of them in Scripture, and when we see the doctrine that's dependent on them, let's not shy away from them. Okay? All right, let's pray. God, thanks so much for this day. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who came to earth. We thank you for the privilege that it is to have 
what this prophecy was made clear. Lord, what a time we live in where we have the completed word of God. I, I mean, we have God's word in its, its fullness in, in our laps to be able to understand this. Um, Lord, as we think of Jesus and how he was born, Lord, would it point ultimately to our trust in your word? Not just seeing the examples of his parents and, and how they trusted in you, but Lord, just a trust in your word, the things that you speak to in your word, and then ultimately the saving faith that you provide through your word. Lord, if there's any here that view your word as something other than your word, if they maybe view it as a good suggestion or maybe a, a great piece of literature in our American culture, God, I pray that you would arrest their attention. These things happened. They're legitimate. But they demand something of us as well. God, I pray that each person, each soul here would be convinced of that and live in light of that. It's in your son Jesus' name. Amen.